From New York, this is Democracy Now! Their empire has gone down and down and down because they did in the past do many bad things to the people of the world. But we are mourning Queen because Queen is a person, a human being. As the world marks the death of Queen Elizabeth II, not all her subjects throughout the former British Empire are mourning her death equally. We'll speak with Professor Mukama Wangugi, son of the world-renowned Kenyan author Ngugi Wathyango. His deaf uncle was shot by British soldiers and says colonialism happened to real people. It is absolute madness to expect us to mourn the Queen. We'll also speak with Harvard history professor Caroline Elkins, author of Legacy of Violence, A History of the British Empire, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning book Imperial Reckoning, The Untold Story of Britain's Gulag in Kenya, which helped lead to reparations for more than 5,200 surviving Kenyans subjected to systematic torture under British rule. Then, the family of Carl Dorsey, an unarmed black man killed by New Jersey police New Year's Day 2021, has filed a civil lawsuit against the officer, the Newark Police Department, and the city of Newark. We filed a lawsuit seeking damages under what's called Section 1983 of the United States Code, which says that when an officer acting under color of state law or federal law uh, takes a life, uses excessive force, unnecessary force, then he can be held liable for damages. With Carl Dorsey's sister, then tens of thousands in the majority black city of Jackson, Mississippi, now have their water restored for the first time in weeks, but it's brown that's coming out of the taps. As Republican Governor Tate Reeves says privatization is on the table for the Jackson water system, we'll speak with reporter Judd Leggett about how the multi-billion dollar corporation Siemens already helped create the water crisis. This is a company that came to the city of Jackson offering solutions. They said if the city signed a $90 million contract, the largest in its history, it could not only solve a lot of the problems with this water system, but it could generate more revenue and help improve the entire water system over time. But that contract turned out to be a disaster. The company never delivered on its promises, and it made the situation much, much worse. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Ukrainian forces have regained control of almost all of the Kharkiv region in the northeast of Ukraine after launching a counteroffensive against Russia. Russia's defense ministry has acknowledged pulling troops from the city of Izium and other parts of the region. Ukraine's claiming it's recaptured 20 towns and villages over the past 24 hours, but millions were left without power water Sunday after Russia bombed key civilian infrastructure facilities in the Kharkiv and Donetsk regions. The New York Times reports the United States played a key role in helping Ukraine launch the counteroffensive via intelligence gathering and training. One former Obama official said, quote, these guys have been trained for eight years by special ops. Over the weekend, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, called for allies to send more weapons. 
We showed that we can defeat the Russian army. We're doing it with weapons which were also provided by our partners. I repeat again, the more weapons we receive, the faster we win, the faster this war will end, and we would be able to concentrate on other goals. This comes as Ukraine has shut down the last operating reactor at Zaporizhia, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, amidst fears that fighting near the Russian-occupied facility could lead to a nuclear catastrophe. A third of Pakistan remains underwater following devastating floods that have killed over 1,300 people and displaced tens of millions. During a weekend visit to Pakistan, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said he had never seen, quote, climate carnage on such a scale. Emissions are rising as people die in floods and famines. And this is insanity. This is collective suicide. From Pakistan, I'm issuing a global appeal. Stop the madness. End the war with nature. Invest in renewable energy now. Buckingham Palace has announced the state funeral for Queen Elizabeth II will take place at Westminster Abbey on September 19th. The Queen's body will lie in state at the Houses of Parliament beginning Wednesday. On Friday, King Charles III gave his first public remarks since assuming the throne following the death of his mother. In taking up these responsibilities, I shall strive to follow the inspiring example I have been set in upholding constitutional government and to seek the peace, harmony and prosperity of the peoples of these islands and of the Commonwealth realms and territories throughout the world. Over the weekend, at least two people were arrested in Britain for publicly criticizing the monarchy. The activist Simon Hill said he was arrested in Oxford after yelling out, quote, who elected him during a ceremony honoring King Charles. Election results in Sweden remain too close to call after Sunday's vote, but preliminary results show a coalition of right-wing parties have a narrow edge. The anti-immigrant far-right Sweden Democrats Party appears set to become the second-largest party in Sweden's parliament, winning more than 20 percent of the vote. The party emerged out of Sweden's neo-Nazi movement in the late 80s. Ahead of the election, Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg accused Swedish politicians of not doing enough to confront the climate emergency. No party in Sweden is taking the climate crisis seriously or has policies in line that are needed to keep us in line with the Paris Agreement, if we include all our emissions and look at the social justice aspect. This election campaign has, as always, been dominated by populism, party programs that are detached from reality, aggressive personal attacks, and pure lies. Here in the United States, a federal grand jury has subpoenaed former Trump adviser Stephen Miller and more than a dozen others as part of a probe into Trump's fundraising efforts after the 2020 election and attempts to submit fake electors to overturn the election. Others subpoenaed include Brian Jack, Trump's final White House political director. 
on Capitol Hill. Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders is threatening to vote down a stopgap bill to fund the federal government unless Democratic Party leaders strip it of a measure making it easier for polluters to win permits for new fossil fuel projects. Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer says he included the permitting reforms in order to win the support of Senator Joe Manchin for sweeping climate and health care legislation known as the Inflation Reduction Act. Senator Manchin has received more campaign contributions from fossil fuel interests than any other member of Congress. An early draft of permitting reform legislation obtained by Bloomberg was watermarked with the letters API, suggesting it was written by the American Petroleum Institute. On Friday, 72 House Democrats sent a letter to party leaders warning the legislation would harm low-income people and communities of color. They write, quote, "...these destructive provisions will allow polluting manufacturing and energy development projects to be rushed through before the families who are forced to live near them are even aware of the plans," unquote. In Louisiana, elected officials in St. James Parish have rejected a $2.2 billion proposal to create the largest methanol production facility in North America between two historically black neighborhoods. It's a major victory for environmentalists in southern Louisiana, who spent nearly a decade fighting the proposed petrochemical complex. The region is often called Cancer Alley, an 85-mile stretch along the Mississippi River between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, where some 150 fossil fuel and petrochemical facilities operate. Sunday marked the 21st anniversary of the September 11, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and United Airlines Flight 93 that killed nearly 3,000 people. In a tweet, the American Civil Liberties Union said, quote, Today we honor the victims of the tragic attacks on 9-11, their families, and all of those impacted. We also reflect on the destructive legacy of our country's war on terror and the lack of government accountability for the resulting harm inflicted at home and abroad. Meanwhile, in Chile, protesters marked another 9-11 Sunday, the 49th anniversary of the U.S.-backed military coup that ousted democratically elected leader Salvador Allende and led to a 17-year dictatorship by General Augusto Pinochet. Chile's president, Gabriel Boric, called for an intensive search of people who disappeared after the September 11, 1973 coup. Let's relentlessly keep searching for the detained and disappeared. 1,192. 1,192 detained who went missing and that we still don't know where they are. This is unacceptable, intolerable. We can't normalize it. The Montana Department of Public Health and Human Services has instituted a new rule blocking transgender people from changing the sex listed on their birth certificates, even if they have had gender-affirming surgery. The ACLU of Montana has asked a state judge to strike down the rule. Meanwhile, in Boston, a bomb threat was called into Boston Children's Hospital Friday for the second time in two weeks. The hospital has come under attack recently by right-wing groups for establishing the first pediatric and adolescent transgender health program in the United States. 
The state of New York has declared a state of emergency over an outbreak of polio virus, which has been detected in wastewater in four counties since April, as well as here in New York City. Vaccination rates among children in the affected communities run as low as 58 percent. Public officials say their goal is to vaccinate over 90 percent of New Yorkers. The CDC recommends children receive four doses of polio vaccine by the age of six. And in film news, Laura Poitras's new documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, has won the top prize, The Golden Lion, at the Venice Film Festival. The documentary focuses on the photographer Nan Golden and her campaign against the Sackler family, who made billions selling OxyContin, which helped spark the opioid epidemic. After Nan Golden became addicted to OxyContin, she founded the group pain. That's Prescription Addiction Intervention Now. And she organized protests at art museums funded by the Sackler family. Laura Poitras spoke on Saturday after her film became only the second documentary to win the top prize at the Venice Film Festival. I've known a lot of brave and courageous people in my life, but I've never met anyone like Nan. Somebody who could decide to take on a billionaire Sackler, the billionaire Sackler family, which is ruthless and responsible for countless deaths and so much bloodshed, and decide to like take this family down, along with her organization, Pain. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As the world marks the death of Queen Elizabeth II, we begin today's show looking at how she had many subjects throughout the former British Empire, and not all are mourning her death equally. Buckingham Palace has announced the state funeral for Queen Elizabeth II will take place at Westminster Abbey on September 19th. The Queen's body will lie in state at the Houses of Parliament beginning on Wednesday. On Friday, King Charles III gave his first public remarks since assuming the throne following the death of his mother. In taking up these responsibilities, I shall strive to follow the inspiring example I have been set in upholding constitutional government and to seek the peace, harmony and prosperity of the peoples of these islands and of the Commonwealth realms and territories throughout the world. Over the weekend, at least two people were arrested in Britain for publicly criticizing the monarchy. The activist Simon Hill said he was arrested in Oxford after yelling out, quote, who elected him during a ceremony honoring King Charles III. For more on British colonial violence and its legacy, we're joined by two guests. Caroline Elkins is professor of African and African-American history at Harvard University. Her most recent book is titled Legacy of Violence, A History of the British Empire. She was awarded the 2006 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction for her first book, Imperial Reckoning, the untold story of Britain's gulag in Kenya. Her research into Britain's brutal suppression of the Mau Mau movement in Kenya in the 50s resulted in a court case and helped lead to the awarding of reparations to more than 5,200 surviving Kenyans who were subjected to systematic torture and abuse under British rule. Also with us, Mukamawa Ngugi, associate professor of literatures in English at Cornell University. His most recent book is titled Unbury Our Dead with Song. He's the co-founder of the Safo Cornell Kiswahili Prize for African Writing.
In 2020, he was part of the initiative at Cornell to change the department's name from Department of English to Literatures in English. He's the son of the world-renowned Kenyan author Ngugi Wa Thiong'o. After Queen Elizabeth died, our guest wrote, My uncle was deaf. He was asked by British soldiers to stop. Of course, he did not hear them. They shot him dead. My other uncle was in the Mau Mau. My grandmother hid bullets for him. Colonialism happened to real people. It's absolute madness to expect us to mourn the Queen. Professor Mukamau Angugi and Caroline Elkins, we welcome you both to Democracy Now! Professor Ngugi, let's begin with you. Your response to the death of the queen, the monarch who reigned for 70 years, and what she meant for Africa, and specifically your country, Kenya. Mm. Yeah, so what, what I've been thinking about over the last few days is how uh, how my family got affected, right, got, got, got affected by British colonialism, right? And so, yeah, in my tweet, I mentioned about my, my uncle, you know, who was deaf. Uh, he couldn't hear the soldiers, you know, the British soldiers, so they shot him. Uh, and also my other uncle, who was in the Mau Mau, um, you know, in the, the Kenya London Freedom Army. Um, but but what, what, what what's become interesting to me now is the intimacy of, of colonialism, right? Because uh, I was talking with my father the other day, and he told me this story about how we also had a home guard, a loyalist in our family, right? Uh, his brother, one of his brothers was a loyalist, the other one was in the Mau Mau. And how at some point, you know, <laughs> they went to my grandmother's place at the same time, you know, and they both ran away, right? Um, in, my, in, my, in my own case, my name Mukoma, I'm named after a chief uh, who was called Mukoma, of course, yeah, who was forced off land, uh, in, in this really beautiful place called Tigoni, and, and, and him and his people then were forced off the land and taken to, uh, to, a, to, to, a, to, a, to a very, very arid area, right? So what, what I think what I want people to think about is that these questions of colonialism, they happen to real people, right? Like they, there's no, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it happened to real people. If you could share for our audience, our audience in the United States and around the world, mm -hmm. who aren't familiar with Kenya's history, um, going back in time uh, and back to the British colonial time when it became a colony, mm -hmm. uh, Kenya's independence, and um, who the Mau Mau were. Yeah, so, so the Mau Mau uh, were— um it, people call it a rebellion, but really we should call it, call it a revolution, right? You know, so we should, we should say they were revolutionaries. Um, but, okay, British colonialism was brutal. There's, there's no other way of putting it, right? Uh, and then when, when the Kenyans started resisting, the British government um, declared a state of emergency, in which case then, you know, a lot of Kenyans were taken into detention camps. Uh, in fact, the school I went to call Genia, uh, we also called it Manyani because it was a former concentration camp, right? So it was very, very brutal. Um, the, 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 the resistance itself, we don't, we, we don't give it enough, um, 
in enough historical breadth, right? Because a lot of people were talking about, talk about it as, as, as a queer affair or, um, you know, like a very narrow movement. But it, but it, it actually involved the whole Kenyan society. So you have, you know, Kenyan Indians who are supporting the, the Mau Mau, uh, the different ethnicities and so on and so forth. For, for the audience in, in the United States, I would say, a quote in a writer um, who wrote so many hangers, uh, oppression breeds resistance, right? You can't have oppression without resistance. Yeah, so yeah, so, so we have that resistance. Come independence, um, the betrayal happened, right? You know, it's, so okay, there were, there were factions within, um, you know, within the independence movement. So the betrayal happened where you ended up with a, with a president who actually at some point, this is uh, Jomo Kenyatta, who at some point called the Mau Mau terrorists, right? Um, but, but, I, but I want to mention a bit of irony here, that, that in Kenya now we are mourning. There, there's a four-day, the, the, the current president declared a four-day mourning period uh, for the queen. But his father, Jomo Kenyatta, he himself was actually jailed and detained uh, by the British, right? So I, I, I think there are two levels here. One is governmental responses or, you know, the, the larger structural political issues. Um, and, but, but then the other level is what people are saying themselves, right? So, so yes, yeah, so, so, so we have a neo-colonial government, if you, if you, just to put it bluntly, right? That's not respecting the wishes of, of, of the majority of Kenyans, you know, who uh, were affected by, the, uh, by British colonialism. I mean, <clears throat> the Queen had a special relationship with Kenya. Um, not only, mm. though, it is interesting that she learned of her own father's death, which led to mm -hmm. her ascension as Queen, when she was visiting Kenya. The significance of this, Professor Ngugi. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the ironies, historical ironies, right, uh, that, that she became Queen of Kenya, but at the same time when— um, when the repression against Kenyans was actually becoming, you know, was becoming not just visible, but also vicious, you know, detention camps, murders, wanton shootings, and so on and so forth. Um, there's an obsession, I think, within the monarchy, right, uh, of having these territories, you know, if, if, in, 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 the, uh, in the headlines, it, it, in the headlines, King Charles, you quoted King Charles, right, where he was saying that, um, you know, that we have realms, territories, and so on and so forth. Um, but there's—I don't know, for me, I, I think it's, there's a degree of psychosis, right, that you can go to another people's uh, land, right, colonize them, you know, and then expect them to, uh, to honor you as, at the same time. Right. Um, the, the, the fact that Kenya has entered four days of mourning for the Queen actually captures that whole absurdity. Right. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, there's a part of me that finds all this so, uh, like, so I don't know, silly to put it that way. Right. Like, so, <laughs> you know, yeah. So, so yeah. So the Queen became the Queen in Kenya uh, at the same time. There were murders, assassinations, you know, and just good old-fashioned corruption, and so on and so forth, right? And then at the same time, we expected to, you know, to mourn, you know, to mourn the queen. Um, yeah. 
I wanted to bring Professor Caroline Elkins into this conversation, your colleague at Harvard, uh, with the African and African American History Department, author of Legacy of Violence, A History of the British Empire. You won the 2006 Pulitzer Prize for your book, Imperial Reckoning, The Untold Story of Britain's Gulag in Kenya. Tell us that story and how— um, I mean, most of, of course, the reason that the reparations went to so many Kenyans, thousands of them, was because of their activism, but because of the your book as well. Well, thank you so much for, for having me today. You know, I think a few things here. Um, first of all, the book itself, Imperial Reckoning, really picked up on where—what the literature—and I mean literature told us. Nkomo's father, Ngugi Wantionko, had written about this in literary form. Humanists are often one or two steps at least ahead of, of, of historians. But I was determined to, to tell the full story of these detention camps that were set up um, on a massive scale. Nearly 1.5 million Kikuyu, or Africans, were detained in detention camps or emergency villages, barbed wire villages, as a way of suppressing Mau Mau. These documents were then they denied at the time first under Churchill and then his successors and, and finally Macmillan, they denied any wrongdoing. And when allegations did surface that had some credibility, they explained it as a, the fault of a, a one-off, a so-called bad apples. Instead, what we find is that when you piece this story back together again, that this was a story about systematic violence, torture, murder, and massive cover-up. And the bottom line is that serious crimes happened on the Queen's Imperial Watch. In fact, her picture hung in every detention camp in Kenya as detainees were beaten in order to exact their loyalty to the British crown. And the, the question that remains now that I think we're debating in some ways is how much did she know and what did knowing mean? Number one. And, and how do we reconcile this moment in time, particularly in Kenya, around her death? And I think it's here where, one, I think, first of all, we should honor those individuals, those who, who, whose families experienced this, and Comos and others, to choose not to mourn. <laughs> and certainly, based on the history we know, it is, it is their decision to do so and absolutely within in their right to do so and quite justifiable. At the same time, what I find very interesting is getting back to Nkomo's point about current President Kenyatta, and frankly, many others. When this case happened at the High Court of London, five claimants, initially test claimants, sued the British government for systematic torture and violence in the detention camps of Kenya in the 1950s. And four years later, the British government settled the case, as you noted in your remarks. But for each of those five claimants that came to London, they each believed that they were appealing not to the British government, but to the Queen. The person they wanted to see most was the queen. And one of them, um, Wambuki Waningi, said in, in his statement, and I quote in my recent book, if I could speak to the queen, this is what I would tell her. And he says that under her watch, British government tortured her, but that he did not hold her personally responsible. And so when I step back and look at this, what I see is some of her power is not only that these that that the, the 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 extraction of wealth and land and the rest, but the fact that she herself, as her predecessors did, wrapped herself in empire, deflected from what was being carried out in her name, and beckoned colonial subjects like Wambugu to revere her. 
And to this day, many still do. And in some ways, in some ways, that's how we can explain how governments like the current one in Kenya are calling for four days of national mourning. Can you talk more extensively um, about the Mau Mau rebellion, what Professor Ngugi called really a revolution, and what mm -hmm. the British did to them in Kenya? Absolutely. A, a hugely important question, right? Because I think the Mau Mau, in a nutshell, was an anti-colonial and a civil war. It was anti-colonial in that it was a, the those who joined the movement and they took an oath of allegiance. And nearly 1.5 million Kikuyu, the British government estimated about 90 percent, took what was considered the first oath of allegiance to the movement. So this was a massive movement, and they were they were demanding Ithaka and Awiathi, or land and freedom, from the British government. And as a way to suppress that, the British government rounded up and detained nearly all of them, nearly 1.5 million. It was also a guerrilla war. About 20 or 30,000 fled to the forest. And there was a classic, if you will, sort of military action within this. But the British government uh, gained the initiative over the forest war, as it's called, um, within two years of the war. Right. So from 1952 to 1954. But the state of emergency that had been declared extends from 1954 to 1960. And it's during that period of time. That's the period of time that I largely focused on in Imperial Reckoning. It's during that period of time where they exacted extraordinary torture, forced labor, punishment, starvation in order to get the detainees and those who were detained in emergency villages to renounce their allegiance to Mau Mau to adopt their allegiance back to the British and to the crown and to Her Majesty in order to be released from the camps um, and to become, as they considered themselves to be, quote unquote, the British civilized subjects. And so that's at the heart of both Mau Mau, what they were demanding, and the British government. Ultimately, the British government uh, it becomes a war of attrition. The British government ultimately decides to decolonize or leave Kenya in 1963 after it is caught red-handed in 1959 with the what's called the Hola Massacre, where 11 detainees were beaten to death in Hola detention camp. And what's different about this, it wasn't an exceptional moment, but what's different about this is they get caught red-handed and they can't explain it away. There's a huge uproar in Parliament about this. It is explained to the Queen by then Prime Minister Harold Macmillan that this was an unfortunate incident based upon the actions of quite minor officials, when in fact, of course, we know now as historians, which I sort of uh, exposed within Imperial Reckoning, that this was the long, that the end of a long pattern, six years of brutal torture, murder, and, and starvation tactics, and, uh, along with forced labor in these camps of Kenya. So when we look at the cost of the funeral alone, uh, India's Economic Times says the funeral is expected to cost six billion pounds, um, not to mention the expenditures of the royal family over these decades. Um, how much of that money comes from the pain and suffering of the people of mm -hmm. Kenya? What were the resources in Kenya? Of course, most importantly, human resources. But what was mm -hmm. Britain extracting from Kenya? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, look, this is a this is an enormous question you touched on, Amy, and one that we're not going to settle in, in, in the context of our few minutes here. But it, I can tell you this. The British government, the moment the Queen ascended in February of 1952, the British government was reeling from the post-war effects and its economy was in tatters. It decides that it is going to rebuild its economy and its position as, as part of the big three on the international global stage on the backs of its colonized people through a policy called imperial resurgence. 
And Kenya becomes an incredibly important part of this with its tea and, and coffee export economy. Because Britain needed this money within its monetary policy. We, we don't need to get into the details of that. They needed this in order to uh, bolster the, the, the pound sterling, pay back loans uh, from the war, and rebuild its economy. So there's no question whatsoever. I think I'm answering your, 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 your question in a slightly different way. But there's no question that during Queen Victoria's reign, Kenya would be one example, Malaya with its rubber exports, Ghana with its cocoa, that her governments, her economy, her nation rebuilt itself on the backs of empire. And that I think we're, we're fairly unequivocal about. So the question becomes today, and getting back to some of Lacoma's points, it's not just the morning, but it's thinking about who is, you know, and this, this you be guaranteed this funeral, like every single royal occasion, frankly, since Queen, uh, Queen Victoria in the 19th century, and certainly under Queen Elizabeth, every royal occasion is an imperial one. So not only will they be spending money in some ways in, in sort of an elliptical manner that comes from, from empire over the years, but they will also be holding out the symbols, the signs, the images of empire through medals and statues and the like, reinforcing imperial greatness. And that imperial greatness is inextricably linked to Britain's monarchy. Do you see reparations being a very real now and prominent issue as the queen dies and Charles becomes king? Unquestionably. Look, I think that, you know, a, a few things. I think these have, there was the, the case that you gestured to, the Mau Mau case, which I was involved in with expert, as an expert witness. But particularly in re recent years, the King Charles III and the royal family have become well aware of global demands for a kind of global British imperial reckoning, if you will, based upon the protests, based upon the, the petitions um, from formerly colonized people and those still living in Commonwealth realms. It is unquestionable as well. We can debate all we want how much the Queen knew at the time about what was going on. There is no debate whatsoever that this current king, has the knowledge of that serious crimes happened on his mother's imperial watch. And it's up to him at this point to jettison, in some ways, the tradition that his mother held so, so dear. Revise, and going back to the, 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 the speech that you played earlier in our program, where he also speaks to Britain's unique history of imperial, and, 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 quote unquote, unique history, and I would add, of imperial benevolence, that she cultivated in a firm for 70 years. And he has to reconcile with that. He has to speak to these questions of reparations. The alternative is to simply carry on, and that's only going to hasten the, the monarchy's demise. And that I feel fairly confident in saying. Professor Makoma Wangugi, we give you the final word. Um, what do you demand now that Prince mm -hmm. Charles has become King Charles III? I, 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 so what, what I would like to see is— the dismantling of this notion of the Commonwealth, right? You know, it's, I was thinking about the name earlier, from a rightly perspective, Commonwealth, whose wealth? Um, but, but, but the way I've been thinking about all these issues is actually through slavery, right? Uh, so the, the book I'm, I'm, working on, or I'm working on now on Africans and African Americans uh, took me to Keta in Ghana, right? Um, Keta is where slaves were being taken from, right? And it's a very depressed, you know, it, it, the, 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 the aftershocks, if you want to call it that, or the trauma uh, of, of slavery still, you, it's, it's, it's evident, right? It's poor, 
depressed, and so on and so forth. Uh, my Angelou called it melancholic, actually, right? Then from there, I left Keta, then I went to Bristol uh, in, uh, in England, right? Bristol was a slave trading port where, um, you know, yeah, it, and it's, it's thriving. It looks like a good old-fashioned bohemian town. Uh, it, most, most people know it now because of the, uh, of the dismantling of the statue of Colston, who was one of the slave traders. But at any rate, we can see the effects of slavery, right? We can see the effects of colonialism, and we can see how the wealth, uh, the wealth of, of, of England was built. Uh, Eric Williams, you know, called, talking about Liverpool, uh, said that there's no brick in Liverpool that doesn't have slave blood on it, right? Uh, but I, I, have no, I have no faith in King Charles. I mean, <laughs> I have no faith in him at all. Uh, but what, what's, in, what's interesting to me now is the groundswell, you know, the groundswell of, of Africans who are affected by colonialism. Uh, and, and it, okay, maybe I should just call it the global south, right? I think now there's a consciousness uh, that we don't need England, right, either materially or psychologically, right? Yeah, so, yeah, I, I would say my, my faith is with the people in the global south, not, 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 not the monarchy. Professor Makoma Wangugi, we thank you so much for being with us. Associate Professor of Literatures in English at Cornell University. And Caroline Elkins, Professor of African and African American History at Harvard University. Legacy of Violence, A History of British Empire is her book, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning Imperial Reckoning, The Untold Story of Britain's Gulag in Kenya. Next up, it's been almost two years since Newark police killed Carl Dorsey. His family has just filed a civil lawsuit. We'll speak with his sister. Stay with us. Can I go forward when I don't know which way I'm facing? By John Lennon. The British musician John Lennon returned his MBE, an honorary title to the Queen, in protest over Britain's role in the war in Biafra. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The family of a black man killed by Newark police while he was unarmed is demanding answers after the investigation into his death dragged on for nearly 20 months. The facts, they say, are clear. 
Carl Dorsey was shot dead just after midnight, New Year's Day 2021, by undercover police detective Rod Simpkins in Newark, New Jersey. Simpkins was in an unmarked police minivan and in plain clothes when he arrived at the scene after reportedly hearing gunshots. Within seconds of exiting his car, Simpkins fired his gun at Dorsey. It's unclear if he first announced himself as a police officer. Dorsey's family says an investigation by New Jersey Attorney General's office has so far led nowhere. Now their attorney has filed a civil lawsuit against Simpkins and several other officers who were there that night, along with the Newark Police Department and its police chief, Darnell Henry, and the city of Newark. Robert Tarver is a former state prosecutor. He spoke Sunday to Democracy Now! about how the case seeks punitive damages and accuses police of excessive force. We filed a lawsuit seeking damages under what's called Section 1983 of the United States Code, which says that when an officer acting under color of state law or federal law uh, takes a life, uses excessive force, unnecessary force, then he can be held liable for damages. We also sued under the New Jersey Civil Rights Act, which basically says the same thing, that where you violate the New Jersey state constitution— and clearly they did here because the Constitution gives you the right to liberty, which is life. When that happens, then we have the right to seek damages. Let's put it into context. January the 6th, 2021, is when the insurrection occurred in Washington, D.C. Since that time, we've had numerous investigations, numerous arrests, numerous people have been prosecuted. Some have been to trial. We're dealing with one incident here in New Jersey. And it's one incident that is captured on video. And the attorney general's office has done nothing to let this family know what the outcome is of their investigation. That's Robert Tarver, the attorney for Carl Dorsey's family. Democracy Now! spoke to him over the weekend. We also spoke to Carl's lifelong friend, Neem Dorsey Bay, who described what it was like to lose him. He was a funny human being. He loved to draw. He loved to be with his family. He always tried to get everybody together for family functions, whether we had a dispute, whether we didn't talk. He would try to get everybody together. You know what I mean? Because everybody, we only live once, but at the same time, we have to enjoy ourselves and each other while we have that time to do it. You know, Carl was a very strong family structured brother. It's like there's no more I can say about that. Like he was um, well loved. Definitely, he's the oldest brother out of all of us. I'm the second oldest. I'm about to get emotional. I'm so sorry, because every just bring it up, it makes me. I'm sorry. For more, we're joined by two guests. In Newark, New Jersey, Medina Person is the sister of Carl Dorsey, the unarmed African-American killed by an undercover Newark police detective on January 1st, 2021. In New York City, Larry Hamm, chair of the People's Organization for Progress, we welcome you both to Democracy Now! Larry, if you can start off by talking about the whole case and the protests that you've been holding demanding answers. Well— as you know, uh, Amy, and thank you for inviting me on this morning, uh, Carl Dorsey was killed on January 1st, uh, 2021. Uh, he was killed by uh, Detective uh, Simpkins. And immediately there were demonstrations um, organized by uh, groups in Newark, including uh, the People's Organization for Progress. And since that time, we've been working closely with uh, Medina, who is on this morning, with um, 
Carl's stepdad, Abdul Muhammad, and uh, the family. And we support the family in their struggle for justice. In New Jersey, there's an independent prosecutor bill. So when local police kill someone, that case is no longer taken by the county prosecutor. That case is taken over by the attorney general's office. And the attorney general's office has had this case, as you said earlier, Amy, for almost two years, uh, going on 20 months now. In that bill, there are benchmarks uh, where the attorney general is supposed to report his findings. We are well beyond those benchmarks now. So we're calling on the attorney general, uh, Matt Plackin, uh, to meet with the family, to meet with Carl Dorsey's family, and also to report to the community, because this is a concern for the family, but it's also a concern for the community, and make their findings known. Uh, two years is too long not to hear anything from the attorney general about this case. In addition, we're calling on the U.S. attorney for New Jersey, who represents the Justice Department, to also look at this case, to in fact see if any of Carl's civil rights uh, um, uh, civil rights were violated. That is, federal civil rights laws uh, were violated in this case. And uh, lastly, we're calling on the state legislature to pass uh, police reform legislation that it has had for two years, including legislation that would enable Newark and other municipalities to establish police review boards with subpoena powers, because we believe ultimately the best antidote to police brutality is community control of the police. I wanted to bring Medina into this conversation. Um, uh, Medina Person, first of all, our condolences to you, even as this death happened almost two years ago. I know it uh, is so deeply painful you, to you right through to today. Can you talk about how you learned that your brother Carl had been killed? Sure. Good morning. Um, so— so um, on New Year's Day, I received a call about 7.30 or so in the morning, and the call was from my sister, Naima, and um, I thought that she was calling to wish me a happy new year. Um, I spoke to her the night before around 11 or so o'clock at night, and we both told each other that we would call each other around midnight to wish each other, wish each other a happy new year and we didn't get around to doing that so the next call i got from her was again around 7 30 in the morning and i pick up the phone and she's crying hysterically she can barely speak and i asked her i said what's wrong and when she finally was able to speak she said they kill call and i said i, I like i was just in shock so the first thing that I could think of even to say was, I said, you know, why are you playing like that? Like, don't play like that. Stop playing. And she's like, I, I'm not playing. The North police killed Carl. And um, so, uh, mind you, at this time, she was actually living out of state in Delaware. So she dropped everything that she was doing to, we decided to meet at my Aunt Wanda's house um, the whole family did. So uh, by the time I got to my Aunt Wanda's house, my cousin was there and everyone's, of course, hysterical and crying. And and for some reason, there was this 
this bit of hope that he, maybe he he wasn't dead. So, um, uh, the the family was kind of hanging on to that idea, and uh, they wanted me to call call the hospital that he supposedly that I think that the hospital that he that he was taken to. They wanted me as his sister to call the hospital to to see if he was um in their morgue and I just I couldn't do it I I didn't want I didn't want to hear that kind of news and especially not over the phone but it was um later on in the day confirmed that that he that he died have the state spoken to you I mean have the Newark police have the investigators uh, what communication have they had with your family with Carl's family Absolutely none. I've heard from no one. I've not not a police officer, not the attorney general's office. Absolutely no one related to this case has reached out to myself, has reached out to our attorney, has reached out to anyone in our family. We've had multiple family members call the attorney general's office. And again, they've received no information. We have absolutely no details, no we know nothing about anything that's that's going on. If anything is going on, there's we don't know anything about any kind of progress. And I, what I are you demanding nothing. in this civil lawsuit that has just been filed? Well, we're demanding justice for my brother. Um, and we need people to 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 be accountable for what happened to him. We need the officer who killed him to be held accountable for his actions. We need the North Police Department to be held accountable for their inactions in not firing this police officer years ago, because it's it's my understanding that he, like, this is a pattern for him. Like, he's, he's, he's pulled out a gun in plain clothes um, on civilians before, and he was allowed to still be on the force afterwards, um, which is unacceptable. And we need the attorney general's office to be held accountable for their for the lack of discipline from the North Police Department. Um, let me ask Larry Ham as we wrap up, what new did you learn from the video that was released? Um, and has Officer Simpkins been involved with other cases of misconduct? Yes, Amy, uh, this officer has been involved in other cases and uh, does have a reputation and uh, we, frankly, we call on the city of Newark to fire this officer. We feel that he shouldn't be on the force. Uh, the tape is clear. He shot and killed an unarmed man. Uh, he shouldn't be on the force. So once again, we're calling on the attorney general to step forward, to meet with the family. Right now, right here, I'm calling on attorney general for New Jersey, Matt Platkin, to immediately set up a meeting with the family of Carl Dorsey, with Medina and her sister, his stepdad, and, and any other uh, family members, and meet with them and tell them what's going on with the case, and then tell the community. In addition, I want to say— We just have we're 30 seconds. Yes, we're going to have a demonstration for Carl Dorsey next Monday, September 19th, 5 o'clock p.m., in front of the federal building, 970 Broad Street, in Newark, New Jersey. 
Larry Hamm, we want to thank you for being with us, chair of the People's Organization for Progress, and Medina Person, sister of Carl Dorsey, the unarmed black man killed by an undercover Newark police detective on New Year's Day 2021. The majority black city of Jackson, Mississippi, is where we head next, where some of the water is on, but it is dark brown. Stay with us. I'm going down to Mississippi. Oh, I'm going down a southern road. And if you never see me again, remember that I had to go. Going down to Mississippi by Phil Oaks. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show in Jackson, Mississippi, the majority black city where tens of thousands of residents who went for two to three weeks without water have now had their water restored in most cases. But in videos that have gone viral online, many say it's brown water. That's coming out of their taps. Meanwhile, the capital city remains under a boil water notice as children return to school. The latest water crisis stemmed from a flooded water treatment plant, but has been decades in the making. As residents look for solutions, Mississippi's Republican Governor Tate Reeves says, quote, privatization is on the table, unquote. But privatizing Jackson's water system may be part of what led to the crisis. For more we look at how Jackson contracted with the German multinational conglomerate Siemens in 2010 to overhaul the city's water infrastructure and install new water meters for its billing system. The system turned out to be faulty. Siemens said it went, quote, above and beyond its contractual obligations to help address the city's well-known challenges, which are complex, unquote. Reporter Judd Legum lays all of this out in his piece headlined, This Multi-Billion-Dollar Corporation Exacerbated the Water Crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. It's published in the independent newsletter Popular Information, dedicated to accountability journalism. Judd Legum, welcome back to Democracy Now! We just have five minutes. Lay out what you found. Tell us about Siemens and tell us about this brown water that is coming out of people's uh, faucets now. Well, I think the brown water is a reflection of the really system that's been deteriorating now uh, for decades. Uh, the story that I reported uh, tracked how, uh, starting in 2010, Siemens came to the city of Jackson, who was already suffering uh, under a very uh, faulty water system at that time and said, we have a solution. You can pay us $90 million. That's the largest contract uh, signed at that time in city history. We will install these new automated uh, water meters. This will not only pay for itself, but generate extra revenue, which you can invest back into the water system. They came to the city offering a solution but this contract ended up being a disaster. Not only uh, did it not meet their promises, the automated meters didn't work really at all. Uh, many people stopped getting bills. Those who got bills uh, received ones that were far too high and, and did not pay them. 
Um, and so it created massive deficits uh, and ultimately led to a lawsuit uh, that was filed by the city. And uh, ultimately, uh, they agreed to a settlement. Siemens agreed to a settlement. But in the interim, there was essentially a lost decade where the system deteriorated further and there were really no substantial investments made. And that's part of the reason why we see uh, what's going on today, which is a boil water order, uh, undrinkable water, and probably more trouble uh, in the months and years ahead. And talk about the role of U.S. Consolidated, a company owned by former Mississippi state politician and lobbyist Tom Wallace. Uh, well, that part of the issue uh, with this contract uh, was that Siemens had agreed to uh, get a fairly high percentage, I believe it was 58% of minority-owned uh, businesses. Uh, but instead of file, finding qualified subcontractors to do this, uh, the city alleged uh, that it essentially partnered with shell companies who did no work, including this very highly connected uh, former um, legislator who, who owns U.S. Consolidated, essentially were just act as a pass-through. They would buy the meters uh, from one company, sell them to the city uh, for uh, a markup. Uh, another company would install them. Uh, so essentially, this one company, U.S. Consolidated, was paid $20 million for, uh, according to the city's lawsuit, essentially doing no work at all. What happened to the $90 million from the settlement? Why is Jackson's water system still such a disaster? Well, a third of it went to the lawyers uh, that filed uh, the suit. And as I mentioned, there were large uh, deficits that were created because of the inability to collect fees uh, while these meters were in place. So some of it had to go uh, to fulfill those deficits. And then, although the cost of the contract was $90 million, Jackson obviously didn't have $90 million sitting around. They issued bonds. The total cost of those bonds were $200 million. And the issuance of those bonds required, requires them uh, to maintain a reserve fund. So between the lawyers, the deficit were created, and the reserve fund, there was very little left, less than $10 million uh, from this $90 million settlement uh, that Jackson had uh, to reinvest uh, in the water and system. Siemens, and at this Siemens yeah. saying, Judge, uh, Siemens saying, Judd, um, that they went above and beyond their contractual obligations? Well, uh, that's what they're saying. Obviously, they agreed to pay $90 million, uh, the full amount of the contract. Uh, so they must have—they they acknowledged, at least implicitly there, uh, that this didn't go well. Uh, when I contacted Siemens looking for comments on what's going on now, they said, uh, due to the nature of the settlement, they couldn't discuss it any further. What's next, and what has most shocked you in your research? We have 30 seconds. Well, uh, next, they're going to try to find uh, the money to pay for this. So far, the state has been very reticent uh, to do so. There are There is federal money coming in uh, through uh, the infrastructure bill uh, last year, uh, through the American Recovery Act, and it's a matter of convincing the state uh, to allow those funds to flow to Jackson. That would at least be a start in doing what's now seen as up to $2 billion uh, in improvements necessary to get clean water to the people of Jackson. And Governor Reeves saying privatization's the answer? Governor Reeves is now looking at privatization. Uh, and so, you know, we may see history, history repeating itself. We'll have to see.
Judd Legum, founder of Popular Information. We will link to his new piece. This multi-billion dollar corporation exacerbated the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Gesder, Messiah Rhodes. I'm Amy Goodman. Stay safe.